Good morning again. Please turn to the book of First Peter, chapter one. I'll be reading First Peter, chapter one, verse seventeen. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Father, may the power of Your grace make us See, understand what is plainly written. And may you cause us to grasp it, get it, (coughs) and love it with our hearts. For the sake of the name of Jesus and of our salvation, I pray. Amen. Verse 17 is the third command that Peter gives in this first epistle. Remember the first 12 verses, he laid out the gospel. He laid out what Christ did and what He purchased and how God is saving those who are being saved. Then in verse 13, He finally gets to the first command and He says, hope fully in it, this grace which is to be brought to you. Then in verse 14, the second command, be holy in your conduct. And now this morning, the third command to the Christian, live in fear. Each of these commands are a litmus test for how biblical our life is. If you do not read, slowly get, and understand the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, then these commands are just utterly unintelligible to you. But if you do love, see the beauty of the first 12 verses and say, that's me. It's summed up there in verse 8, though you don't see him, you love him. And rejoice with a joy inexpressible. Then when he says, hope fully in it, that's no problem. But when we come to the second command, be holy in your conduct, I think there are more of us to have a little bit of a problem. Hmm. And when we come to this command this morning, Live in fear. (laughs) That is just utterly rejected by the culture and almost unintelligible to the church world today. 
It is politically and psychologically incorrect. So much of conservative American evangelicalism with its pop psychology, feel-good sermons. The point is for you to come on Sunday morning and let me say what you want to hear. This type of verse, to actually let it sing, is deemed unhealthy by the many church-going. But remember, in the context, Peter has just said, be sober-minded, gird your minds, prepare your minds with truth, which means the Christian life, growing in the Christian life, is not merely taking a few comfortable verses of Scripture and say, that's my Christianity. It is Allowing the whole counsel of God to hit you, which includes uncomfortable and difficult to understand texts. So let's look at our text this morning, verse 17. Notice what Peter's doing here. Notice the reason he gives for the Christian to live in fear. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, That's it. That's the reason. He says, if, meaning since you, are are you one of those in verse 3? Are you one of those in verse 8? Has God's grace come and miraculously changed your heart in new birth so that it responds to Christ in the gospel as the treasure of your soul? If that's true... As Paul said in Galatians, He has poured out the Spirit in your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Do you call this God your Father? That is, the one who judges impartially according to your works, deeds, or God. He says, if that's true, since that's true, because that's true, therefore live. Do your life in a sense of fear. The logic is clear. The reason we are to conduct our lives and how we live and how we act and decisions we make in fear is because we call on God, the Father, through Jesus, that one who will Judge us according to our works, manner of life. Secondly, let's notice the word fear there. It's the Greek word phobos. You you hear this in English, right? Phobias, claustrophobia, xenophobia. 
There is no special Greek word for reverence or reverent fear. So if you have an NIV where they, in their paraphrase, decide to translate it reverent fear, that's an editor's interpretation. And sometimes it, uh, up interpret, all translation is to an extent interpretation. But here, I think, instead of helping it, that blurs the meaning. When he says conduct your life in fear, he means fear. Meaning, <laughs> there's something you want to avoid at all costs. Fear that, for instance... Take my kids to the beach. Take my three-year-old and go up to the water. Look and see how strong the tide is that day. And I want to instill a fear in her. I want to say, Hannah, you can touch the water with your feet and your plane. Have fun. But see this water? It's strong. If you go a little bit further out, this could knock you down and pull you out and drown you. So, understand that. Avoid that happening. Fear that. If, if I take my family to the Palace Verde Cliffs, we have a picnic out there. I take my little ones, and we go closer to the cliff, and you see how straight down it is? People have died falling off this cliff. You don't want that to happen to you. So I may draw a line in the dirt, maybe five feet away, and say, the boundary isn't you falling. The boundary from daddy setting down is five feet from the cliff. I don't want you to die. Does that mean? Wow, bummer. Because I'm saying, have a fear of this cliff. That means the kids cannot enjoy themselves with the family playing soccer and football on all the other land that's out there on the other side of that line. No, they can be free to enjoy. And then the soccer ball kind of rolls towards the cliff and the three-year-old gets closer and closer and then sees the line and fear grabs her and causes her to turn. Repent and get away. That's what he means by fear. See, Peter makes it very clear in this verse what we are to fear. Fear because God will judge us according to the way we live. It's what it says. Fear because the one we call Father judges everybody on the same kind of evidence. Impartially, that's what that means. In other words, what do our lives, our conduct, our actions, what are those things in our lives saying about our heart? There will not be different rules for different people. There is only one means that God has ordained that brings individuals to salvation. That one means is faith. And there is only one standard of judgment 
and that is your life, which springs from that heart of faith. See, if this is true, then there is an appropriate fear for believers to live in, as he says in the text, during this time, meaning from conversion to death. That's what he means by throughout your exile. There's an appropriate fear, and that is fear living in a pattern of life in such a way that gives evidence that you really don't believe. You really don't trust Him. You really don't love Him whom you don't see. He's saying, your life will give evidence whether we do or whether we don't. Remember, the whole context is clear. He said in verse 13, place your hope. That's faith. That's the future aspect of faith. Place your hope fully. Take all your passions and filter everything through. Are you hoping in the second coming that the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? That's what he's saying. So when we come to verse 17 and he says, live your life in fear, here's another way to say it. Fear living your life in such a way that shows you don't hope in Christ what he is saying. All actions come from somewhere. When you see this action and that action and you start to see patterns of a life, you look at that fruit and you follow that fruit back down through the branch and the tree and the trunk and through the dirt and you get down to the root and that root will say, this is what he is hoping in right now. All actions don't just spontaneously appear. They come from what we're hoping in. See, here's the big question for us. How is it, Peter, that we are to hope fully in the gospel? Remember, he defined what's going on in verse 8. Though you don't see him, you love him. Though you don't see him now... Yet you believe in Him, you, and you hear it, you rejoice. But an unspeakable glory. Uh, how do you do that and fear? Because He's going to judge how you live at the same time while we're living this life. The answer is you hope fully and you fear not hoping fully in See, he's simply saying that the evidence of a good root is the fruit that it bears. All actions come from the will. Our will is what causes our conduct and our actions. Obedience of faith or disobedience to God's revealed will. The Holy Spirit produced faith, which we saw in verse 3. The Father has caused you to be born again. You didn't do it. Producing faith, producing hope, that changes something about our capacity to will. To obey. 
come unto me, all you who are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. It changes what we do. Remember Jesus' parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man sees it. No one's looking. Buries it. Goes away. Now watch. He acts. He goes home and he sells all he has. But don't miss it. Here's the connection. Jesus said, here's the proof that that person actually saw the gospel. Oh, excuse me, the treasure. From joy over his find, he went and sold all he had. That's what the rich young ruler didn't have. That's what Jesus was doing. Here's a test whether you actually believe me, the Savior, standing in front of you. And he went away. He couldn't do it. It just proved he didn't have faith. Jesus wasn't saying, earn salvation. It, you cannot earn salvation. You can only receive it. And Jesus was getting at the core of whether he received it or not. True biblical faith has, on the flip side of that coin, fear of not having faith. Fear of unbelief. Because those who truly have come to Christ find Him to be such a treasure that the thought that their actions, their patterns, their life styles would be evidence that their hope, their joy is really not in Christ is so fearful to them that that fear causes them to come up to the line on the cliff and say, ooh, I'm turning away like Daddy said because I don't want to die. I don't. Christ is too precious. Fear, Peter says, living in such a way that evidences that you don't love Him, trust Him, See, this fear that Peter's talking about is the confident, secure kind of fear that knows something. Remember Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He tells us believers, work out your salvation with fear. And trembling. He doesn't stop. He says, because, and this means you're supposed to know this, because it is God who is at work in you both to work and to will according to His good pleasure. In other words, As we're called to live in fear, there's so many ways to misconstrue this. And this is why for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to try to help us not do that. See, he's saying, 
Believer, understand the Gospel. He's saying understand God's sovereign work in saving you. That's Paul's logic. Because it is God who is at work in you to cause you to will in such a way that you're evidencing faith. Because of that conclusion, okay, sirrah, sirrah, be a couch potato. Don't worry about how you live. It's not a biblical conclusion. The biblical conclusion is, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a fear that knows something. It's the fear that knows understands what Peter wrote in verses 1 to 12. It is a fear that, here's the key now for the next 20 minutes, it is a fear based on the gospel that it knows its future salvation is secure. It knows that on judgment day, vindication is mine. And because you know that, those who know that with a saving faith, they will live their life in fear of not evidencing actions and the lifestyle of faith that saves. Here's the big way I want to put this. Now, a couple big terms, these terms I'm going to use, these are not seminary terms in the sense of theological terms that theologians do need to we, we, we invent that help us understand Bible. I'm going to use terms that when you open your Bible, they're right in front of you as you're reading your New Testament. And so, watch a response in your heart that says, oh, that's just a big word. Watch that because that means what are you doing when you're reading that on your couch in the morning? I mean, do you don't care what God means through Paul, Peter to you? So, here's the key in understanding the gospel. You must understand the difference, the distinction between justification and sanctification. You must understand the difference between imputed righteousness and infused in you righteousness. They're not the same. And the distinction for the Christian life is really Important. Faith alone, apart from any works, is the means that God, through Christ, justifies a sinful, wrath-deserving sinner like me. I'm, just, I'm gonna, 
Throw the other biblical term in. That faith alone, at the very moment, doesn't matter if you can pinpoint it, but there was a moment, according to verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1, God the Father caused you to be born again. At that moment, you were raised spiritually from the dead. Faith was birthed, produced by God in you. When that initial faith came about, at that very instant and that very moment, God imputed means credited to you or put to your account Jesus' righteousness. What's going on in justification? There are two crucial things, and this is the center of the gospel. Not only were the sins of all who will be saved imputed to Christ on the cross, but Jesus' perfect humanity, living sinlessly in perfect obedience to the Father as a human being, that life is imputed to the one being saved. When those two imputations happen, by means of your coming to saving faith, it means God reckoned, credited, or imputed to your account His righteousness as He reckoned, Im- imputed to Christ's account, your sin. Now, no. God did not infuse your sin into Jesus. Jesus did not sin. It's not what happened when He bore the punishment from sin or for sin. It means the Father in heaven, the Godhead, reckoned, not put into Jesus, but considered the sin of all who will be saved, laid on Him, and thus punished Him. And thus, sin and its penalty justly satisfied. Just as much as Jesus did not become a sinner in order to die, neither do you become in your actions righteous in order to be saved. His perfect righteousness in heaven, in the Godhead, is reckoned to you. Just a couple texts. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made Him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Romans 4, 2-5, Paul 
puts it this way. For if Abraham was justified, now here it is again, this is a legal term. What is it that made Abraham God's friend? How is it that God did not spew fire out of his mouth and burn him up? Because he was justified before the law, who is God. But if Abraham was justified by his works, what he did, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Quote, and Abraham believed God. And it was, here's the word, imputed. Or the new American, reckoned. Or put to the account of. It was reckoned, imputed to Abraham as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what as, as what is due. But to the one, here's Paul, he's talking to you. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned righteousness. What he means by that phrase is, it is that faith which was the means through which God puts to your account Jesus' righteousness. We, if you are a believer, meaning if you have been born again, we have a righteousness. Let me just say this. Look, most of you, you know me pretty well. I don't play very many games. So you know what a sinful wretch I am. I am perfectly righteous before God. I have not done an act of perfect righteousness in the last week, nor ever. But I have a standing with the holy, just God that is perfect, perfect righteousness. I possess it. It's mine. Well, now let's be careful. The righteousness that I have is not my righteousness but it belongs to another person. Jesus. It's His righteousness which I have before God now and unendingly. That's what it means to be justified. Your sins have been Accounted for and punished fully, completely, and done away with. You're acquitted, but you don't stand there now acquitted of sin. But still, I'm Joe. He's also positively clothes you with positive right doing in humanity. But it's not yours. It's Christ's. 
It's foreign to you. Put to your account. See, this, because we're going to come back, we're going to get back to our text, right? Live in fear. But this is so crucial and so practical to understand this doctrine of justification, which comes by faith alone for everyday life. Because, see, if you think or you have in your mind that justification comes because God infused, in, it imparted, put into me, has indwelt me by His Holy Spirit, changing my will, changing my... Thus, we just talked about this. The tree... And the branch of the will has fruit. So I acted out better than I would have before. I did it in in some kind of a sense. An act that was pleasing to God. Based upon the Holy Spirit. Infusing the Holy Spirit in me. Who is God. Who is righteous. In me. And there's a fruit of the Spirit. Oh, based upon those actions. God justifies me. If you think that. Theologically, biblically, you don't understand the gospel. And practically, look, you're going to wake up the next day. And, and, and if you have the grace enough to be real with yourself, even when you look so pretty in everything you do from the outside, you know your heart. And if you're in touch with that, you're going to know the next day, as you wake up grumpy, Maybe God's not pleased with me. Am I justified today? Okay. The 16th century Protestant Reformation was largely over this issue. It was believers. It was the church in the West. It was the church starting to read the Bible and say... We need to reform. We've got doctrines that have grown up that are not lining up with Romans. In other words, the church of Rome, until today, the church in which I was born into, the Roman Catholic Church, is wrong. Not peripherally but at the core of the gospel. They deny justification by imputation alone, through faith alone. But instead, they officially teach justification by infusion into you the righteousness of Christ through which now you take hold of and act out. And based upon your faith in Christ, taking hold of the grace being infused into you by the Holy Spirit, you add to that faith works and together they justify you. Now, depending on where you're at, that can seem like a small difference. And it's huge in so many ways to the glory of God, to the understanding of souls, and to the salvation of people. 
Most of us, I see numbers of us who were raised in the Roman church, and we don't know most of us while we're there. But see, this is why you start with a few of these sacraments. You know, there are seven, but here's some significant ones and what's going on officially. Baptism in the Roman communion means that the water is the means by which you get born again. You got, in other words, baptism causes regeneration, the life of Christ in you. Thus you're safe at that moment. But of course we grow up, don't we? Okay. And so, that's where the sacrament of penance comes. Because what you will do is you will commit a mortal sin. Mortal? What's it? Death. In other words, you will sin in such a way, not just a venial sin, but a mortal sin, which will kill your life. Salvation. Thus, penance, confession, before priest, and to receive absolution, so that now you again regain the life of your baptism, and this is the cycle of life. But that is not the gospel. And it's not peripheral. It's wrong at its core. If a person, and trust me, here's the thing, there are millions of Protestants who live that in their own way. If a person lives with this wrong understanding, then it is up to you daily to try to work and to maintain your state of justification before God. But if you understand and know that the word credited, reckoned, or imputed righteousness means that God credits the righteousness of another person, Jesus, to your account, once for all time, then everything is different. His righteousness, if you're born again, if you have come to saving faith in Him, His righteousness is yours, even though you sin. Even though you fail. Now, here's the point. We're moving closer back to our text. Based on that, fight the fight of faith. Hate sin. Refuse to fall off the cliff. Because if you do, you will prove that you never believed. Truly. To sum up, genuine Justifying faith, that moment, that miracle, when that happened to you, that unites you to Christ. And that being united to Christ does two things. Now here's the other big term. It does two things to produce in the believer sanctification. 
So the first is, it unites you to God, the Holy Spirit, in a unique way that you didn't have before your salvation, before your regeneration. You're united to Him who is producing in you new desires. And secondly, it has severed the overwhelming and the irresistible temptations of sin. Now something's different. You have the ability, and you will find always imperfectly, but actually conquering the temptations of sin, all owing to the Spirit in you producing His fruit. Just re- remember the context now. Back at First Peter, he said in verse 14 and 15, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the desires, now listen, of your former ignorance. He means before you were miraculously born again. Verse 3. Before He united you to Christ. That's former. You could only, always, even religiously, with all your heart, profane God's name. Now that you've come to Christ, those desires, they're there. But they're former. And so he says, but instead, as he who called you is holy, you be holy and also all your conduct. Meaning, there are new desires. Therefore, we are justified by faith that very moment alone, apart from works. And the lifestyle, the works, the faith, the faith that produces those works is the fruit of the faith. It's not the cause. It's the fruit of of justification. It's not the cause of justification. John Bunyan, back in the 1600s, who wrote one of the most read and bought books of all time called The Pilgrim's Progress. And this this doctrine almost always finally hits true believers, not when they're first saved, down the road. And it can be so freeing. And I hope that's true for some of you. It was true for John Bunyan as he writes in his autobiography. One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He, John Bunyan, lacks my righteousness. For it was in front of him the whole time. 
He says, I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better. Nor my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. Because my righteousness was Jesus Christ. It was then that my chains fell off my legs indeed. And now I went home rejoicing for the love and the grace of God. We must understand the distinction between justification, big word, same word as righteousness, Christ's righteousness being ours, the distinction between justification and sanctification. They are inseparable but they are distinct. Justification has to do not with what's going on inside of you. It has to do what's going on in heaven concerning you. Sanctification has to do with what's going on inside of you. Growing, pursuing, repenting, trusting, taking advantage of the means of grace. And therefore now, the demand for obedience to this book, the demand for obedience in the Christian life is not lessened because of the glorious gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Why? Because if the fruit of faith does not emerge in your life, then you don't have a right to think that you are being saved by Christ. Because you don't have a right to think. You have biblical saving faith. See, this is what James, the Lord's brother, was getting at when he wrote in the epistle of James in chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James, his point is not, that's great, you have real saving faith. Now, add to your faith works. It's not what he's saying. He's saying your so-called mental assent of what it is to believe is not real faith. If that faith doesn't have fruits in your life. 
So now, on that foundation, our text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, says, Believer now, is Christ your righteousness? Do you see it? Do you love Him? Do you cling to Him? He says, now, daily, conduct your life in fear. Meaning, fear having a heart that wouldn't treasure this gospel. Fear having a heart that would evidence itself to be a heart turning away from this Savior, this Christ. Because genuine faith takes unbelief and its own hardness of heart seriously. And it hates it. And it turns. And it repents. And it grieves. And it rejoices. And it does it because this genuine saving faith believes that God will judge everyone impartially based upon their works which are evidence of their saving faith. Our deeds are intricately connected to saving faith. That's what Peter's getting at. Now, faith refers to how we respond to God. God has spoken. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I, I believe in prophecy, it's in the Bible. I've had God bless me. Like 1 Corinthians 12 talks about through other people. They had a word. But it's such a lower level. I have no qualms about saying this. God does want to minister to His church through the Holy Spirit. Thus, through individual to individual in the community. Let it happen. But that's not the Word of God in the way that God has spoken once for all in Holy Scripture, God has spoken. Faith is how you respond. God has laid out what He wanted to lay out about Himself. So to the extent He has revealed who He is, not the figment in your imagination of what you would like God to be, but how He has said He is in Scripture. It's what faith does. Believe Him. He has told you about His eternal Son. Not only did He predict it through the prophets hundreds and hundreds of years, many times over, that He would save through the Son of David. He sent His eternal Son, and He accomplished atonement, and He gave to the Apostle Paul what this atonement means, how it works. Read it. Hear it. Believe it. That's what faith is. God has spoken. And He said, Do not have any other gods before Me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. Faith hears that from this glorious saving Father through Jesus Christ and says, wow. Or you say this way, 
God is saying through the Ten Commandments or the 484 Commandments. This is what He's saying through every one of them. Do you trust Me? Do you have faith? Activate your faith. Trust Me. Now, there is a huge difference between legalism on the one hand and obedience of faith on the other. Church history is filled with a number of problems, but one of the ongoing struggles that we as the church for the last 2,000 years struggle with are two errors. On one side, here's the term we use for it, legalism. On the other side, now here's one of those theological created terms, antinomianism. Okay, now it's real simple, guys. Anti means against... Nomian is from the Greek word namos, law. Just means there's, there's law. Like God says, don't have sexual relations with a person who's not your spouse. He says, don't steal. Okay, we can go on and on. There's law. Antinomianism is a misconstruing of the gospel of grace that says, I'm saved by grace. Therefore, how my life works itself out from there to the coffin, the patterns that I show of where I'm really trying is totally disconnected and irrelevant to whether I'm going to heaven or hell. And it's just not true. Legalism is, uh, I know, i got to do better because if I do, then that somehow brings to me salvation. Both are utterly not understanding the gospel. See, God commands. Here's the, the best illustration I got. It was from a, a professor, Dan Fuller, of mine, and it's, I just can't find any better. As you wake up, like me, we are sinful creatures. Even if you are born again, sin is there. What's different is the Holy Spirit lives in you too. And you constantly are being drawn with desires and temptations to not trust God. And you see it in God says, don't be sinfully angry and lash out. Don't take your own revenge. Let's just, we just go on through. Okay, here's the deal. Okay, there are commands. Faith is not, or say it this way, real Genuine obedience to God is never after the analogy of a job description. If you think or view, or you don't even think about it, you might be doing this. God is like an employer. Employers need stuff. That's why they hire employees. They're not just doing it to be, you know, the word I want. Showing grace. I want to hire people who are going to provide a need for me. And so the employer gives you commands. This is what I'm hiring you for. This is what you do. And then you obey commands and you do it. And now the employer is in your debt. They owe you. It's called a paycheck. 
If you approach God that way, well, look at that. I didn't steal. Look at that. I gave a lot of money to the church. If you do it like an employee, it is sinful to its core. All faith, the obedience of faith, instead is the way that a person obeys their physician. Totally different. You, you go in, you, you're having problems, they, they do it different diagnostic test on you, they find out your problem and they say, this is, we can deal with this. You'd be dead a hundred years ago, but now we know exactly what to do. Here's a prescription. Go fill this out and take these as prescribed and you will be better. Okay, you're, are you going to obey the doctor? You see the difference? Your, doct, your doctor says, you're not doing anything for him if you obey. You're not providing for him. He's providing for you. If you go home and you crunch up that prescription and throw it in the trash can, you are giving evidence that you do not trust your doctor. All obedience of faith is like a patient looking to the doctor. Tell me what to do to survive. And it can do drastic things. Some of us know, like Marcelo and Lillian's friend, nine days ago, didn't have a clue. Since then, his doctor gave him commands. Show up at the hospital at a particular time. And we're going to get a saw. And we're going to cut your skull open. And we're going to start cutting on your brain. And we're going to take out a tumor. You know what he did? Okay. Because he trusted Okay, that's what I need to do. I'm looking to you. That's Christ. That's what obedience of saving faith is. When Peter says to us, and if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, the rest of your life. He means those deeds will be going to be judged. They are the evidence that you're a true believer. He's saying because we know that God will judge our life, fear, therefore, hate, the remaining sin and actions which come from it. Hate it. Flee them. That's the pattern of life until you hit the coffin. This is why the New Testament, God speaks to us Christians, I'm just going to give you a couple, the following way. And the reason I say it that way, some of us, in our Christian life, have heard such wrong teaching that make the following text irrelevant. And when you find that you, as you're sitting alone, no one knows, and you think in your idea of Christianity, somehow that doesn't apply to me, when it's a letter from Paul to the church, know that something's wrong with your thinking. For instance, Paul says, 
In Romans chapter 11. You will say then, branches, the Jewish people, for the most part, the branches were broken off so that I, a non-Jew, a Gentile, might be grafted in to Christ. Quite right. They were broken off because of their unbelief. And you, Christian, stand only by your faith. Next sentence. Do not be conceited, but fear. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. If you're a believer, and your faith is genuine, it's, it's a whole other sermon, and I've preached it umpteen times in the last number of years, because it's all over the Bible, but I'll preach it in 10 seconds here. If your faith is genuine, you will never fall. And one of the signs that your faith is genuine is because you take Warnings like this. Seriously. That's why Paul said, as we saw in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And trust me, He's not going to fail. Or why the Hebrew writer says to the church, be careful Brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God, but instead encourage one another day after day. Just pause. Do you find need for that in your life? Or is there something about your idea of being a Christian that says the encouragement of other believers actually knowing me and in my life? I don't know if I need that. Check your heart. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. Lest any one of us who profess Christ be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, why should we do that? Verse 14, because we have, not will become, we have become, perfect tense in the Greek. It is true, a past event with present ramification. It is true that we are true. It, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. 
So if you're true, you will. And we know, if we've been Christians long enough, many professors of Christ, they're gone. It's not because they lost their salvation. They prove they have never become partakers of Christ. Peter is saying we should live our lives from a motivation of hope in God daily. It's no different than saying this since we're in the circumstances that we're all in. We're left in our mortal bodies. Paul calls it sinful nature, the flesh. Therefore, it's no different than saying, fear not hoping in God. So practically as I close, what does that mean? I mean you find yourself becoming obsessed with an idol. The women are working through a book called Idols of the Heart. You're finding that your idol is, if I only had that new couch or that new home or any home or better clothes or more money, money, money. And so as you pick up the Bible, you you turn to something like Hebrews chapter 13 and you read, and here, here it is. Remember, faith is a response to God. So you read, God say to you through the writer to the Hebrews, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because he has said, here's the test. Joe, do you trust God who said, quote, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wait, that's the reason that in that circumstance, which is for me nothing compared to John Bunyan in a prison because he refused to say, if you let me out, I'll stop preaching. So he stayed in the prison year after year. God says, even there, John Bunyan, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And so, the writer in Hebrews says, therefore we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Not money. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or, you're tempted to find more pleasure in an adulterous affair than you are In God, who says, trust me. Don't do that. Or, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication. Flee means run as if in terror. Fear it. Why? Fear if you are a person who is committing in an unrepentant way sexual acts with another human being who is not your spouse. He says, flee what that would mean about where your heart is toward God. And trust in Him. That's what it means. So when He says to us, conduct your life in fear, it just means fear. Unbelief in you.
Fear the what your con. See, just as a cold, fevers are a gift. Fevers are a symptom that tell us something's wrong in the body. We might need help to kill it. Our conduct is a gift to say, where did that come from? Why did I blast my wife so angrily that way? You go away and you realize, you're so discontented, Joe, with me. It's a gift to repent. So he's saying, live your life. Verse 3, having been born again. From a changed heart, which was produced by the Holy Spirit, this heart that is to enjoy, to live out, verse 8, though you don't see Him, you love Him and you believe, that is, you trust in Him and rejoice with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Or, in other words, verse 17, fear not having genuine saving faith. Because that's the faith justifies you instantaneously once for all. Live in such a way that understands that your conduct in life will reveal on judgment day, not whether you're perfect, not whether you have your own righteousness, but whether your faith, which changes a direction in your life, not perfection, direction. You're going that way, Christ comes in, and your direction's this way. And it's a life of repentance from sin and going that way. It's going to reveal on Judgment Day that your faith is real, that faith which is proof you're connected to Christ, your righteousness. And if you call, on Him, the Father, who judges everyone impartially according to the deeds. Conduct your life in fear during the rest of your time on this earth. This is why this is part one. He is the God who judges going to come back next week and deal more fully with the implications of that day called Judgment Day. What is this? What are we to know and understand about this ubiquitous idea in the Bible? It's all over. The day of judgment is coming. That'll be next week. As we are keeping our hearts in a place of letting the Holy Spirit work, we will pass out the elements of communion. Just hold the cup and the bread. If you are a believer, you trust that, you are welcome to partake of communion with us. As I do, I want to, I want to read this text as Serge, you begin to come. The Apostle Paul writes... For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Because as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Therefore, let a person examine himself and then so eat the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, what we heard for the last 60 minutes, let our hearts be examined by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Not examine and say, are you worthy to partake? No. But God caused me to partake in a worthy manner. Meaning, let Him show you your sin. Let Him work in you the desire to live in a fear of not trusting Him and doing all of this on the foundation of Christ's body and blood slain for you. That is all based upon Christ providing for you total absolution and His perfect righteousness. Amen.